You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this is episode 100 of Labor Relations Radio, and if you've been around for a while, you know that I like to have people on to help provide a fuller picture of labor and employment-related issues, people that pique my interest and bring a different perspective. Well, over the last month and a half, I've been on the road quite a bit, some of it for work, some of it for family business. And I've also had the opportunity to work with a labor attorney and see him speak on a number of occasions on issues related to protected concerted activity. And for those of you that are not familiar with protected concerted activity, Joel Azir, my guest today, is going to get into it. And this applies to both union and non-union workplaces. So without further ado, here's Joel Azir. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Joel Azir, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. So we've seen each other a lot over the last month or so. We have. And which is kind of the impetus to doing this episode because I've heard you explain protected concerted activity a number of times now in a most unusual way. And I think I'm not sure if we're going to title this Hold My Beer or something of, of that effect, but um, I thought it'd be kind of fun to have you on and, and kind of go through the spiel about protected concerted activity and how it's changing. But before we do that, you also have a fascinating backstory of how you became a labor attorney. Yes. I knew I wanted to uh, be an attorney from a young age. I knew that was something I would want to do. I was a little bit interested in employment law, but I didn't really know anything about labor law. So my introduction came when I was in undergrad. I went to Purdue for undergrad. I was studying engineering. And while I was there, I did a co-op program with a company called Sunstrand Aerospace in Rockford, Illinois. And they make a lot of aerospace products. One of the projects that I was working on had to do with the space shuttle. And it was this tube that we made and it was really it was about a three foot long metal tube in an s shape and this tube connected the fuel gauge to the directional gauge of one of the uh, boosters on the space shuttle so it had to be perfectly precision made and in order to test that we created this stand it was just this little test stand that was uh, not too big and you would just take these pipes and you would match it to one end of the stand, and then you'd slide in the top of the stand, and if it fit into the holes on either end, you knew it was good. So one of the jobs I had to do was to certify these pipes. I love this job because we got paid hourly, and we got paid overtime. And I was a poor college student, so I was working every single second I could, and I was working on the weekends constantly, getting that uh, overtime on the weekends. So it's a Saturday, and I go into the facility. There's nobody else in there. 
and I go down to the production floor. It's this huge, huge open space, and it's got these different departments, but these departments are really blocked off just with paint lines. So you had one department just a few feet from another department, but it was technically a separate department. So I had my stand in one department, and literally 20 feet away, maybe, was the boxes that had all my pipes in them. So I was going back and forth. I was going over to one area, picking up the little box with the pipe in it, bringing it over to the other, and fitting it into the uh, into this gauge that we had. And I did a number of these without incident. And then all of a sudden, I saw this guy come screaming down the aisleway, and he was riding one of those forklifts that you stand on. But it was coming down, and it had lights that were flashing. I had no idea what this what this was. I'd never seen anything like this before. And the guy comes screaming up to me and he stops and he gets right in my face and he goes to grab my ID tag and he says, who are you? And I looked at him and I said, you don't need to know who I am. Who are you? And he said, I'm the union steward. What are you doing down here? Well, I didn't know what a union steward was. I had never heard that term before. So I looked at him and I said, okay, I'm, I'm working on these parts. And he said, you can't do that. You can't move those parts. I said, what do you mean I can't move the, these parts? I own these parts. I had to sign out for these parts. And he tells me that we have to get a trucker, and only a trucker can move parts from one department to another department. I thought he was joking with me. I thought he was just harassing me. So I looked at him, and I said, that's nuts. What do I need a, a tracker for? And he, a trucker, excuse me, a trucker for? And he said, that's what the collective bargaining agreement says. You're in big trouble. And I just looked at him and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. You need to get out of here. Go, just leave. So he stormed off. He went flying out and I finished my job. So I come in Monday morning and my boss is just sitting there with this smirk on his face. And he looks at me and he says, so do you have an interesting weekend? And I said, no, you know, I just worked all weekend. And he said, yeah, I heard you met the union. And I just looked at him and said, yeah, what is a union steward? And he said, well, you're going to find out because they filed a grievance against you and they also threatened to file an unfair labor practice charge against you and we have to go down to HR to talk about it. So I was mortified by that. I had no idea what these were, but I had a great HR team there and they actually had in-house legal counsel. And I had told the legal counsel that I was going to law school, and they were really great about it. They taught me a bunch about labor law and let me sit in and help with the grievance, which eventually got resolved. But that experience made me say, okay, now I know for sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a labor lawyer because that was the most ridiculous thing I had ever seen. And the rest is history, right? Exactly. Yes. You got caught stealing union work and, and be, decided to become a labor lawyer as a result. Exactly. And now I have to warn people not to do labor work or bargaining unit work and explain to them what that means. Right. Yeah. I, I heard you tell this story a couple of times over the last month, and I found it very interesting because I would have been on the other end of that, like saying you're stealing bargaining unit work. You can't do that. Well, the thing that was amazing to me is he, and now this is commonplace, but at the time I didn't understand it. He said, you have to call somebody in to do that work and you have to pay them a minimum of four hours. And I just thought that was the craziest thing I had ever heard. Pay somebody four hours 
to walk 20 feet and carry these little boxes of parts back and forth. Absolutely ridiculous. Right. Well, I, I find that the story is funny and interesting as well, because a lot of people don't understand the concept of what is bargaining unit work until they get a grievance like that. Exactly. Or, you know, they're in the middle of negotiations, but well, the reason I thought it would be fun to have this conversation is I also have heard you over the last month talking about the current status of protected concerted activity. And I was wondering if you could kind of, Go into that again. Sure. So it was kind of funny. Protected concerted activity is kind of labor law 101, as you know. It's one of mm-hmm. the first things you learn about when you study labor law. And protected concerted activity is governed by the National Labor Relations Act, which, of course, is enforced then by the National Labor Relations Board. And Section 8 of the National Labor Relations Act protects activities that are set forth in Section 7. And Section 7 of the Act has protected concerted activities. So in order to be protected concerted activities, there has to be two elements to it, as the name implies, protected and concerted. Protected is fairly easy. It's got to be wages, hours, or terms and conditions of employment. And it's that terms and conditions of employment that trips people up. It's pretty easy to spot something that has to do with wages. It's pretty easy to spot something that has to do with hours. But those terms and conditions of employment are what, uh, what people don't quite think about when they think that it's, it's pretty much everything. And some of the examples that I've used is if somebody is talking about the break periods, the duration of the break periods, when those break periods happen, how people are let go to go on to break, how they come back in, all of those are terms and conditions of employment. One of the examples that I use to show how far it reaches is there was a case that involved uh, a production facility, and this production facility had two different break rooms. One was a larger, newer break room, and that's where almost everybody went because it was very close to the production floor. And another one was smaller, kind of run down, and it was down the hall, not too many people used it. For whatever reason, the company that brought the vending machines in brought a newer one into the smaller break space and an older one into the larger break space. And uh, people were complaining about it. So the company one night switched the two vending machines. One of them went, uh, and I don't remember which went where, but the uh, newer one came into the larger facility and the union filed a grievance over it. The employer couldn't figure out why because they got the newer machine and it looked like everything was the same. And it took a little time to look into it before they realized that one of the machines had plain M&Ms and the other one had M&Ms with peanuts. And whichever one that was preferred got moved to the other break room. So that is actually a, a term or condition of employment, what snacks you're serving in the break room. And that's how far it stretches. So we've got the protected activity, but then we've got concerted activity. And concerted activity seems pretty straightforward as well. When two or more people join together for mutual aid or protection, it's generally considered concerted activity. So for as long as I have been alive, if there was one person who was doing anything Don Quixote style off on their own, it wasn't considered uh, concerted, even if it was protected, because there was nobody else that was gauging in that same behavior. And that's what the 
case has been, again, for my entire lifetime. You had to have this protected and you had to have this concerted. So when you and I were at that uh, seminar in Phoenix and I was asked to talk about protected concerted activity, and it was a pretty educated crowd that knew about this, after I got to this point in the discussion, I said, most of you are probably looking at me and saying, okay, we all knew this. That took you all of about five minutes, so I guess we can just wrap it up and be done early and go start cocktail hour a little earlier because all of us know this. And that was the case for, again, about my entire life, over half a century, until the current NLRB came in and said, hold my beer. We're going to change things up here. So, Joel, let me um, ask you to clarify, because you mentioned a union grievance over vending machines. However, where we see a lot of employers getting tripped up is on protected concerted activity for non-union workers. Mm-hmm. And this is where I've seen it over the years, where non-union employers end up in trouble with the NLRB. I'll tell you, one of the common ones is where you have a small mom and pop shop telling workers they can't they can't compare their paychecks with one another. Exactly. Which, which is a real easy no-brainer, even whether it's Democrat board or Republican boards, that's always been, you know, violating protected concerted activity. But you know, what's interesting is there's this misconception that the National Labor Relations Act only applies in a unionized facility. And it still surprises me how many non-union employers that I talk to who say, well, I don't have to worry about that. Or when I'm trying to do a seminar on things like protected concerted activity, I get a lot of people coming back and saying, well, that's of no interest to me because I don't have a unionized workforce. However, the National Labor Relations Act applies to both unionized and non-unionized facilities. So anybody that's got a statutory employee, which is defined as just about any employee other than a supervisor and a few other specifically named exempt individuals, they are subject to these laws. What I've told people is for years, we didn't see the NLRB doing much work with any entity that was non-unionized. And all of that really, really started to change. It was happening before this, but it really started to change a lot during President Obama's administration. During that time period, we were seeing a, a dramatic decline in unionization only about 6% of the private sector was unionized. And what I tell people is the NLRB is a government agency. The government agency has to justify its funding by by showing that it's doing some activities. So what we saw was we saw a focus being placed on non-union workplaces. And what the NLRB was doing is they were going into non-unionized workplaces, and a lot of them, like you said, mom, pa, shops. And they were asking to see their handbooks and their policies, their practices, their procedures. They were asking to see their severance agreements or any other agreements that they put together. And they were going through and they were making a determination as to whether any of the policies or rules could potentially have a chilling effect on this protected concerted activity. And your example is a perfect example. There's a lot of small shops out there and a lot of bigger employers as well that specifically tell their employees, now look, you're not permitted to discuss what your wages are, what your pay rate is, what bonus you got. They have all sorts of these rules in place that prohibit people from 
engaging in that type of discussion. And what the board has said is individuals have the right to engage in those conversations for mutual aid and protection. And if you fail to do that, you can get charged with an unfair labor practice or a ULP charge. That's a charge that gets filed with the National Labor Relations Board and can come with some pretty stiff penalties, especially if you've taken adverse uh, employment action against somebody. And so one of the things, so we started seeing this during the Obama years under the Obama NLRB. It kind of took a pause during the Trump years. And then we've seen it, I think, in my opinion, a great expansion of it under the Biden years, under the Biden board. And we started seeing it a little bit with the, I think it was before Jennifer Abruzzo got confirmed as the general counsel, but there was a guy by the name of Peter Orr, who I think is now a assistant general counsel. And he started going after, I believe it was Home Depot over BLM. Somebody wanted to scrawl a BLM on their apron or something like that. And they started going after it. I, You may have to clarify for me. I don't know if it was the board that shot it down or it was somebody shot it down. It might've gone to court, but Home Depot came out of that fairly unscathed. And then there's been a, several other attempts to broaden this protected concerted activity to more of a societal issues that are going on, right? Into those right. categories. Exactly. And that's one of the things that's been a little bit shocking to us. So it's always been a matter of if it's a social event, if it's a social cause, if it's a, a social issue, and it's outside of the workplace, then it's not going to fall under the definition of protected concerted activities. And in the cases you're talking about, there was an effort to try and expand that, and it wasn't successful at that time, but the board has come back, and the board has taken additional shots at it. And in fact, there was a case that came out in May of 2023 that involved Fred Meyer stores that had a similar issue. So with Fred Meyer stores, and unfortunately, this is another one of those cases where we as lawyers always talk about this, bad facts make bad law. And this was a case where, unfortunately, there were some bad facts, and now it's been used to create some bad law. So Fred Meyer, like a lot of other uh, employers out there, has on its face, it's a neutral uniform rule. They prohibit any type of slogans. So you can't wear any shirts, any buttons, any hats, any stickers that have slogans on them. And that would include anything from a social, it could be the union, it could be a sports team, it could be any of these social activities. However, they also made exceptions to that rule. And they made exceptions for things like if there was a local sporting event. So, for example, if the Packers were playing and it wasn't in Wisconsin, but if the Packers were playing and they allowed people to wear Packers jerseys, they would make an exception for that. Or they had, during uh, Gay Pride Month, they let people wear gay pride paraphernalia for a short period of time, and they weren't really consistent on how they were applying that policy. Well, what happened is, after the George Floyd incident, a number of individuals came back, this was during COVID, they started wearing Black Lives Matter buttons, shirts, and face masks. And at first, the store didn't do anything about it. They allowed them to wear those, and there was no issue, until some customers started to complain. And once the customers started to complain, they turned around and they said, okay, we're going to enforce the policy now. You have to get rid of all of this. 
As a result, they filed an unfair labor, employees filed an unfair labor practice charge, and the company argued that based on half century of case law, this is outside the scope because it has nothing to do with work. It's got nothing to do with what's going on in the workplace. It's a social activity. But the ALJ disagreed with that. The administrative law judge who heard the case came in and said, well, because it has to do with uniforms and because it has to do with the dress code, the dress code is a term or condition of employment. And as a result, there's a close enough nexus there that we're going to find that this is an unfair labor practice. Now, that did, that decision was an ALJ. It didn't go to the board, but the board has expressed their support for that decision. And that is due to the lax enforcement? The biggest mistake that they made was that by, by they, I mean Fred Myers, was exactly that. They weren't uniformly enforcing the policy. And as a result of that, it, because they weren't doing it on a regular basis, that caused problems. As long as the employer is making a content-neutral decision, they'll have more success in the matter. If it's not a content-neutral decision, if they're kind of weighing each case, case by case, and making these decisions and not enforcing these policies consistently, that's where they're going to run into some trouble, definitely. All right, so the, the summary for employers or the takeaway for employers on that is if you're going to have a policy, consistently enforce it exactly. uniformly, right? Exactly. You have to make sure consistency is one of the number one elements here. As soon as the employees, or if you have a union, the union can show that you've made exceptions, you're probably going to lose that case. And that would also apply to solicitation policies, right? Exactly. So, so I know this is off topic a little bit, but do you want to run through that? Because it seems to be the same principle. It is. It is the same principle. So one of the things, whenever we suspect that there's there might be some type of union organizing going on, or we're just in general trying to be proactive, one of the first questions I ask the employer when I go into the area is, can you tell me what your solicitation policy is? Do you have a strict non-solicitation policy? And by that, just to clarify, is do you let people sell things at work? And I always use the same examples because it's amazing how many times people have said, well, no, we never allow that to happen. And then when I start using examples, they say, oh, well, that's different. So again, if you're if you've got a child who's selling Girl Scout cookies, if you've got a child that's selling popcorn, do you allow people in the workplace to put up those little flyers and have people sign up or to go around person to person and tell them about it? Now, that's one of the examples. Another example, if somebody, do you have bulletin boards? And if you have bulletin boards, are employees allowed to post on them? And if they are, what are they allowed to post? If they're having a garage sale, can they post that on there? If they're selling a car, can they put that on there? If, they're, if there's, their church is going to have a church picnic that weekend, are they able to put up a flyer on that? If there's a lost pet, are they able to put up a flyer on the lost pet? If you are permitting any of those things to happen, no matter how informally they are happening, then you're going to have a problem if you try and prohibit any type of union solicitation during an organizing campaign. Because the board is going to say, if you have a content-neutral policy and you have uniformly enforced that and you have barred individuals from having any type of contact in that manner, then you're fine to bar the union solicitations. 
But as soon as there's evidence that you've allowed any type of ad, any type of sales to go on in the workplace or to be put up anywhere, then you're going to be prohibited from taking down anything that uh, the union organizers are putting up. Now, that's not necessarily new. That's been fairly consistent as long as I can remember it. It is. Is, yep. is the board taking it to another level in this case? Or is it, are they staying just as it's been? Well, unfortunately, the board <laughs> has started to take shots at content-neutral laws. And what's very, very fortunate is there was a Fifth Circuit decision that came out just this week that kind of slapped back at the board a little bit, and that was helpful. So this had to do with Tesla. This was uh, Tesla. Tesla has a policy, and it's a very, very content-neutral policy. Tesla's policy is for anybody who works in some of their manufacturing facilities, they have to either wear a black shirt and black pants or Tesla-branded products. And when I looked into it a little bit more, again, Bad facts make bad law. Good facts make sometimes bad, sometimes good law. But there were some interesting facts in the Tesla facility. So at Tesla, what they do is they give every employee four T-shirts, and they give everybody a sweater. And they're made from a specific material. And the reason for this is at this particular facility, the parts were coming in, and they were, I want to call it pre-painted. I don't know how else to describe it. So they had kind of a base layer of paint on the products, but they did not have the final clear coat on top of them at the time that they were being assembled. And that became a big factor in this case because apparently they're very susceptible to scratches and scuffs, and that's why Tesla had the rule. Well, during a union organizing campaign, a number of the employees started coming in, and they first they were coming in with pins, metal pins. And Tesla said he can't wear that. And then they started coming in with T-shirts. And the T-shirts had the, uh, you know, those heat-pressed designs on the shirts. And they were saying that the, you, the employees were saying, well, that alleviates the problem. That's not going to cause a problem. But it didn't. It, it didn't alleviate the problem. That was still enough to scuff it up. Well, the board took a look at it. And for, again, for as long as I have been alive, the test has always been a balancing test where you have to look at the interests of the employees in promoting their views versus the interests of the employer, the legitimate interest of the employer. And when you looked at those factors, one of the questions you asked was, is there another mechanism by which the employees can get out their message or the union can get out their message? Well, what the board did is the board threw out all those cases. They, they throughout decades, decades and decades of case law, and they created a new rule. And that new rule was any content-neutral policy that infringed upon the rights of employees to express their union support was presumed to violate the statute. And that presumption could only be overcome if the employer could demonstrate a significant and substantial reason for having to have this rule that could not be done in any other fashion. So when Tesla came back and said, well, we have a quality control problem here. We're worried about these individuals being uh, wearing these shirts and scratching up this material. The board said that that was not enough 
and that in fact you have to have something more legitimate and more substantial and something that is more significant. The so, other interest so product damage was not enough. That was not enough. They said that in and of itself wasn't enough. And the the other thing that Tesla was doing was Tesla tried to strike a happy medium here. Tesla let employees wear stickers. So they said, look, you can't have that heat pressed on your your shirt because you're pressing up against this and you're going to scratch it up. But if you want to put a sticker on on your Tesla approved shirt, you can do that. Well, the board came back and it's interesting because the board took a look at a case, the Steelworkers case from 1958, a U.S. Supreme Court case, where there was a discussion about whether if the employer uses some means to communicate its message, does it have to allow the union to use the same means to communicate its message? And in that 1958 Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court said no. As long as you're giving them the right to spread their message, it doesn't have to be identical. Well, the board looked at it, and the board said, well, no, we don't think that's right. Tesla is using this as a platform to spread its message. So the union should be able to use the same thing in the form of a shirt, a T-shirt. Now, that to me is nuts. Tesla is not spreading any message. It gives plain black shirts, or the alternative is a plain black shirt with a little Tesla logo on it. It's not spreading any message, but that's what, what the board found. So they found, uh, they found in favor of the employees. They told Tesla they couldn't enforce the rule. Tesla went ahead and they filed uh, an appeal with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that decision actually came out this past Wednesday when you and I were at one of these uh, sessions we were doing. And the, 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 the decision hopefully brings a little bit of sanity back. What the Fifth Circuit said, and it's really some interesting language that they used, the Fifth Circuit came in and said, look, we defer to the board in interpreting and applying the National Labor Relations Act, but you don't have the right to create new rules. And what we think you did is we think that you created a new rule here and a new standard that was never contemplated by the legislature in creating the law. So in doing that analysis, I want to read this little part of the case because I thought the decision, because I thought it was really well said. What the Fifth Circuit said is, Tesla does not ask the NLRB to ignore the employee's side of the scale. It merely asked the board not to ignore the employer's side. The board has not balanced the conflicting legitimate interests. Instead, it has elevated employee interests at the expense of legitimate employer interests. So in other words, the Fifth Circuit came out and said, look, the law, as stated by the board, and as articulated by the U.S. Supreme Court and United Steelworkers, this 1958 case, is that you have to take a scale, and you have to put the employee's rights to communicate against the employer's legitimate rights. And those have to be placed on the scale at the same time and weighed. And you didn't do that. You made a presumption that the employees have a higher right than the employer. And the statute doesn't allow you to do that. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has struck that presumption. And it has specifically said you cannot, cannot presume that a facially neutral rule, regardless of what it is, 
is presumptively illegal and then force the employer to defend itself. So that potentially could have a lot of ramifications towards other board attempts to change the law, right? Absolutely. Because one of the areas, so this is where I think it's going to have a a big impact. Uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, general counsel of the NLRB, I think those of you who follow your podcast have heard a lot about her and know that she has her target on a number of things. And one of the things that she has her eye on is these so-called captive audience speeches. So these captive audience speeches, which I think is an unfair name for them, but they're simply meetings. Traditionally, they were meetings that were held during a union organizing campaign, and it usually was with a group of employees, and it was held during work times where employees were paid their full salary to sit and hear the message of the company traditionally when there was uh, a union organizing campaign. And it's always been that it's been in groups in order to be considered one of these. But the general counsel has expanded that, and she believes that any even one-on-one discussions between a supervisor and an employee where there's an expression of views about a union could be considered this captive audience speech. Well, her position is one of two things. Number one, she'd like to eliminate them altogether. But if she can't eliminate them altogether, and I'm not sure that one's going to get traction, what is seemingly getting traction is this equal opportunity concept. So what she'd like to say is, for example, if an employer calls in its employees and it keeps them in one of these meetings for 30 minutes to express its view, then it has to keep them for another 30 minutes and afford the union the opportunity to come in and voice its opinion. And this gets back to that same thought process of this equalization. If the employer is using one means or one mechanism to influence employees, the union must be allowed to use the same. And again, United Steelworkers, this 1958 Supreme Court case says, no, that's not the standard. You don't, just because the employer uses one means, the employee does not have to be given the same means. But that's what the general counsel would like to do. Well, now we have this Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision in 2023 that is raising the same concept from 1958 and saying, look, this concept didn't go away. It's still alive and well, and there is no basis for you arguing that this has to be an equal opportunity type of thing. So I've got questions now. Um, This equal opportunity type of... uh, it's almost like the fairness doctrine they're trying to do years ago in, in public media. So if, for example, I'm just going to call it the fairness doctrine, an employer has to retain its employees in a meeting for 30 minutes, pay them to sit there and listen to a union, doesn't that, doesn't that violate the takings clause of the Constitution? Like the employer is going to have to pay them for non-work-related union organizing? Give them access to their property? That is an interesting aspect that I did not think of, but that is a legitimate argument. Because, again, what you're doing is you're forcing the employer to pay for its employees to receive a message from an outside entity. And what's what's amazing about that is try and put that into another uh, concept, into another construct. You know, where else... Would that ever be the case? 
you're never going to say it's a fundraiser, you know, say, right. say it's the, um, uh, it's the, uh, United way. You know, I don't think you'd ever see a government agency that would come in and say, you employer are required to play, pay your employees for 30 minutes while the United way comes in and gives its spiel. You know, that would never happen, but you're exactly right. That's, that's what is being done here, and that raises an interesting concept that I think an employer would certainly be able to raise and say, why on earth am I required to pay for a message being delivered? Forget who the messenger is. Why do I have to pay for an outside ent entity to deliver a message to my employees, especially if it doesn't further one of my legitimate business interests? Yeah, it's like Toyota being forced to have Ford salesmen come into their safety meeting and say, Ford's better than Toyota or anything like that. Exactly. The other question with regard to the Fifth Circuit is obviously that was a favorable decision for Tesla. And one could argue that it's the Fifth Circuit. That's the way they're going to rule anyway. So then there's a equally pro-union circuit somewhere out there that you would think is going to rule differently that eventually would set it up for the Supreme Court, right? Correct. So typically, if there's a case, I don't believe that the NLRB is going to appeal this decision. They, they could. They could appeal the, this decision. And it's unlikely that the U.S. Supreme Court would take up the case because at this point in time, it's simply a court decision. It's not overly controversial. They cited to U.S. Supreme Court prior decisions it's unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to take it up. Where we would see them almost be forced to take it up is, like you said, if there was, for example, the Ninth Circuit, which is very, right. very pro-union, very, very pro-employee, if they were to get a similar case and they were to hold exactly the opposite and uphold a policy like this, which is, is possible. Tesla has facilities in uh, California, so there could be something that happened out in the, in the Ninth Circuit. If that was a case and there were conflicting decisions by two courts of appeal, that's one of the elements that the Supreme Court generally will look at in determining whether they should render the final decision. And I, in this case, I believe that's what it's going to take. I think it's going to take a split in the circuits for that to happen. Now, does the Fifth Circuit decision impact any of the board's current, other than captive audience meetings, it sounds like it may impact the captive audience meeting thing that Jennifer Ruzzo and others wanted to uh, in, instill, I guess. Does the Fifth Circuit impact anything else that's coming up the pike? I think it does for the simple fact that there have been a number of cases that had to do with uh, uh, email and electronic communications. Mm -hmm. So right now, and, and I think this is a perfect example of where, where we are going to see something else come up. So, for example, there's a number of uh, companies out there that have content-neutral email prohibitions. So, basically, they say, look, we own the computer system, we own the email network, and you can only use it for business-related communications. And if they stuck to that strictly, and they really, really did enforce it, then they could probably also implement a rule if a union organizing campaign were to come in and start using that, then they would be able to enforce a rule that said you can't use it for the purposes of distributing 
pro-union uh, information. Unfortunately, a lot of employers don't have that policy that is in place. And in fact, we saw this at the end of 2022, T-Mobile got itself in a little bit of trouble because T-Mobile had an informal policy. And remember, we've talked about this a few times. If you don't have a formal policy and you don't enforce it regularly, you're going to have trouble. So T-Mobile had a policy where they allowed what, what I'll call a de minimis amount of personal usage of the email. And what ended up happening was they had an organizing campaign and, and nobody was really sending out all employee emails until the organizing campaign came in. And then once the organizing campaign came in, the employees, the union organizers inside the facility were using it to spread union literature. T-Mobile then turned around and created a new rule. And the new rule said, no, you can't use it for this purpose. And as a result, uh, they, they got themselves in trouble. An unfair labor practice charge was filed and they lost that case. And that's not anything new. That, that's something that's been around forever. If you make a rule, a restriction, a prohibition that has to do specifically because of union activity, you're gonna lose that. You're gonna lose that 10 out of 10 times and it's unfortunate. However, what was coming up as a target were these companies that were using email, had a content neutral email policy and they were actually enforcing it. And again, this goes back to this, this is similar to what happened in United Steelworkers in 1958. So in United Steelworkers, what was happening was the company, they were getting a union organizing campaign and the company started to distribute leaflets inside the facility. And the union came back and said, well, because you're doing that, you gotta let us do it as well. And the U.S. Supreme Court back then said, no, as long as it's not, this rule is not stifling their ability to communicate at all, there is no equality here. This board doesn't see it that way. We saw it in Tesla, and we've seen it in a couple other cases where if the employer has a content-neutral email policy, but the employer has used it to communicate anything other than pure work, the board has come in and said, well, now you've opened the floodgates. And if there was ever a union organizing campaign and the employer did use the email to communicate its message, absolutely positively, this board would say, now you've opened the door, you have to let it in. Prior to this Tesla case, I would have said there's no defense. But I believe that the Tesla case and what the Fifth Circuit said resonates here. I believe that it is going to be expanded into other content neutral policies and, and laws similar to what we've seen prior to this board coming in. So I think it is far reaching. Unless or in until the unions find a more favorable circuit to hear it, right? Correct. Exactly. And then that sets it up for the Supreme court. And that will likely be depending on how long that lasts, dependent on the next presidential election. Exactly. And, and if somebody on SCOTUS retires, or a couple of people, I guess. What's interesting is right now, I believe that you have a board, uh, I'm sorry, I think you have a Supreme Court that is, I don't, I don't think it's fair to say eager, but I, I think they would welcome a challenge to some of these NLRB decisions. And the reason I say that is the way that the NLRB has, I think it's fair to say mischaracterized some of the US Supreme Court's prior decisions are a little shocking. They looked at a number of these prior cases and they've actually come out and said, well, 
The court didn't really mean that. The court said that in dicta. In dicta is kind of the language that they use, which isn't part of the core ruling, but it's just part of the discussion in the case. And it, it's just not true. There's been a number of very decisive U.S. Supreme Court cases that the board has tried to marginalize. And just my gut and knowing a little bit personalities on this uh, current Supreme Court, I think they'd be eager to get one of these cases. The question becomes, however, is there one that's going to get up the channels fast enough to get to this current sitting Supreme Court? And I'm not entirely sure there is. Right. So while I've got you, let me, can I steal you for another topic similar in the press these days? Sure. This whole joint employer thing. There's a, uh, there's a pushback a little bit on the, the um, I guess the, the ruling that was coming out has now been delayed till February or the new rules on joint employer. But this, it's a, as president Biden once said, it's a BFD, right? And that is the making of employers who may not directly employ employees may use a subcontractor gig workers or in the, case of franchisers, franchisees' employees could be found to be employed jointly by the parent company as well as the contracting company for subcontractors, et cetera, right? Right. So how big of a BFD is this? I think it's a significant deal. And I'm very curious to see how this is going to play out in practical terms. So what we're seeing is we're seeing in a lot of industries, it, what's interesting about this is there's this misconception that uh, employers have some sort of enticement to use temporary employees. And I think where we're going to see this the most is in contract employees and temporary employees. And that's simply not true. Temporary employees are dramatically more expensive than your own full-time employees. You're always paying a premium for those individuals to get those individuals in. And then the other, the other aspect of it is they really have no loyalty towards your company. There's a lot of turnover, so you're constantly training these individuals. So there isn't a whole lot of real incentive to go out and get these temporary employees other than the fact that it is simply a necessity in some industries. For example, there's, another, there's a number of retailers that have to use temporary employees during the holidays and bring those individuals in either as their own employees, as temp employees, or getting them from a staffing agency. And then there's, so there's that cyclical aspect of it. And then there's just the, the plain fact that companies can't find workers right now. It's absolutely incredible how much they struggle. And there could be a number of other reasons to bring in these temporary employees or these contract employees. But I think it's a huge deal because traditionally, when you organize, when you come in and you want to organize a set of individuals, you, you first have to identify the collective bargaining unit. And that bargaining unit is traditionally all employees of a single employer who perform certain functions. And they can be a variety of different functions, but it could be everybody on the production floor at this facility at this location. Or it could be broken down even further, all maintenance employees at this facility, all production employees at this facility. But if you had a situation where you had a number of temp employer employees in the facility, those individuals traditionally were not included in that bargaining unit, 
for the simple fact that they don't belong to you. They're not your employees. They belong to somebody else. So if these rules go into place, the way that they have, there used to be a set of really, really strict rules that came in that said, who has control over these individuals? Who has the day-to-day supervisory um, obligations? Who hires, who fires, all of these things. And this proposed rule is kind of blurring that. Now what they want to do is, what the board is pushing for in all of these cases is more of a totality of the circumstances test. And what I've told Mm -hmm. people is, what does that mean, totality of the circumstances? It means we want to be able to look at everything so we can find something that works in our favor in order to rule the way that we want to rule. We don't like having these fixed fixed set tests. We like to have a little bit of, of wiggle room here. So if these rules go in, they're looking at who has control over the uh, essential terms and conditions of employment, and it's a lot more broad than before. So you could see a situation where an employer might have, for example, 50 full-time employees and 250 temp workers, and a union could come in and seek to organize all 300 individuals in one collective bargaining unit using the joint employer doctrine saying that both of these entities are are joint employers and as a result these individuals should be in the same bargaining unit well there's a couple industries that seem to be very susceptible to it and one is the franchise industry the franchise model if you will so for years the seiu has gone after the the fast food industry mcdonald's burger king etc and I believe, although I'm not certain, but I believe this new rule that they're trying to impose would basically blow apart the franchise model, right? It could. It could, definitely. Because it could say that you are now, you know, with franchise, uh, franchise agreements, you have individual franchisers who are always considered to be separate entities, and you could have corporate stores where the stores are actually owned by the corporation, run by the corporation, and they were wholly separate entities from one another. And yes, it could, because there's always been that arm's length detachment. And a franchisee, for example, could could not get in trouble for something that the corporate did, and vice versa. If there was an unfair labor practice committed by a franchisee, traditionally the corporation or the corporate entity or the corporate stores would not be impacted by that. But yes, it could. It could make them joint employers such that there is no separation anymore. And the other industry would be the construction industry. For example, and I don't want to name any particular home builder, but if you have a major home builder that uses subcontractors to build the homes, they too could be affected by it, right? In theory, absolutely. Because all of those individuals could then be brought into the collective bargaining agreement and be part of that bargaining unit. Now, if you if you think about the ramifications of that, that could just be absolutely positively staggering. You know, take, for example, um, outside of the contractor industry for a minute, let's go back to the production facility that has seasonal spikes and has to bring in a number of employees and then let, let those individuals go. If they're all part of a collective bargaining unit, and they're all part of one collective bargaining agreement, then how in the world would the employer be able to do that? Because traditionally, the collective bargaining agreement is going to have certain rules and restrictions and requirements on how you do your layoffs. And it's primarily going to be based on seniority 
and there could be some other limitations and some restrictions. It could make it impossible to bring in these seasonal employees and then release them after the busy time. Or if it was possible, it, it could be a situation where you had to release new hires that you directly hired, even though uh, they're not temp employees because they have less seniority than some of the employees that were never intended to be in your facility long-term anyway. It could cause a number of Well, they'd be able to flex up and down. I would think through, you know, if you have a contract, you negotiate your hiring and recalls and layoffs and all that sort of stuff. And I, I'm looking at it from a union's perspective. How cool would that be? For example, if you've got, you know, you've got to hire 100 people to for your Christmas season, you've got initiation fees, you've got dues, and oh, by the way, if they leave, big deal, right? You've got those coming in the door as they come in in non-right-to-work states. So, like, I can see why the unions would want it. But, yeah, it's, I guess the other question is, what happens if you want to switch agencies because they just don't fill their contracts enough? Well, that's the other issue with it. That's that's why I'm fascinated to see how this happens in practice. Because to me, think about it this way: so you've got you've got a contract between the employer and the staffing agency, and that contract gives the employer certain rights. We have the right to demand X number of people to uh, hold you to certain standards and certain conduct. But now you have this collective bargaining agreement, which imposes a different construction a different operation on them I, I, again without thinking it all the way through right off the top of my head how does that not violate the contracts clause of the u.s constitution because now you have a federal agency that's coming in and basically requiring you to go through a procedure which may interfere with the existing contract that you have with this outside agency how does that even work it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around who has what responsibility. And then again, let's go back to how does that work for negotiations? So if I, the company, I don't set wages for those individuals. I don't set benefits for those individuals. I don't do any of that, none of it. So at the bargaining table, from a practical matter, they're not my employees. So on one side of the table, it's got to be a three-sided table. There's got to be right. my company sitting there. There's got to be somebody from the employment agency sitting there and then somebody from the union sitting there. And how do we make all those moving parts work together uh, so that they, they, they continue to function in a manner that makes sense? And then the other piece of this is if I have the right to cancel my contract with the staffing agency at any time, well, now, if there's a union organizing campaign coming in and they're trying to organize the whole group and I exercise my right under the contract, I'm going to get hit with an unfair labor practice charge because the board's going to think that I did that have a chilling effect on the next group of temporary employees that come in because they're kicked out. So, yeah, I, I just don't see how it doesn't infringe upon existing contractual rights that are going to be in place before this this whole uh issue comes in. Well, you know, I, I don't know if you've been watching what's happening in California, but they've got this whole sectoral bargaining model that they're setting up with the fast food industry. So they're going to have a state regulatory body that is overseeing every fast food employer out there. And there may be some minimums, but, you know, basically taking over that industry. 
And how is that going to be constitutional? I don't see it. And what's the cost of that going to be? Right. So here you have a state that already is stretched thin. You know, I, I don't do much work in California, but I've had a couple cases out there, and it was mind-boggling to me how complicated and how long the legal process is just because of the multiple layers of bureaucracy and the understaffing that they have. So it, it just it boggles my mind that they would want to create additional layers of bureaucracy in that state. Well, that's the SEIU primarily. It's, you know, they've been pushing this and they're doing something similar in New York. I don't know if it's as far as it is in California yet, but, you know, they've gotten the minimum wage for fast food workers in New York, just that industry increased to whatever the amount is. And, you know, the model is they want to become like Europe. Right. So, well, Joel, I've, I promised an hour that I wouldn't take up more of your time. But I appreciate you kind of going through what we talked about in various states and and having watched you talk about uh, protected concerted activity now three times. So four <laughs> times now, actually. So I appreciate you coming on Labor Relations Radio. For the listeners, you are in Wisconsin, but you have a national practice. That is correct. So we are in the Milwaukee area, but I have employers that have facilities I think right now we're up to about 22 states. So my practice covers a considerable portion of the United States, and I work with a lot of employers in a lot of different states. So how do listeners get hold of you? I can be reached. I'm at Bilo, Vetter, Bukema, Olson, and Vleet, which I know is a, a mouthful. But there are two ways that, that people can get a hold of me. My uh, direct office number is 262 364 0250 or my email address which is usually the easiest way to get a hold of me is j a z i e r e at belovetter.com b u e l o w v e t t e r.com I'll I'll include links under the audio portion of this as well but well Joel Thank you for coming on, especially a Monday of Thanksgiving week. And hopefully you're Thank not you. traveling anymore. Thank you for having me. I, I had a really good time on with you, and I had a really good time presenting with you. And I am done traveling for at least uh, three or four weeks. Oh, so good. I'm good. ready to be home for a little bit. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on Labor Relations Radio. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. So that was Joel Azir with the law firm Below Vetter. And as always, I'm going to leave some links under the audio portion of this episode, but we covered a lot of information. And as and if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to him directly, or you can reach out to us by going on to X, formerly known as Twitter. You can reach out at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at one 668 6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Have a great week and happy Thanksgiving. Until next time. I don't want to waste my integrity. I'm just a man living a one I stand. I'll tell you what I need. Oh, black tree. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.
Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.